Okay, gentlemen, we're here. This is a car dealership, right? And so I'm here in my Chevy Silverado, a longtime F-150 driver, but I'm in my Chevy Silverado and we've just pulled in to what looks like a gigantic car dealership because it is a gigantic car dealership. I'm here with, well, introduce yourself, gentlemen. I'm Stephen Moffat, a seminary student from Northern Ireland. Yeah, he's a seminary student from Northern Ireland. That's why he talks like C.S. Lewis. And then, this is an audio podcast. We're getting honked at by a, by a truck here. So you can't see this, but Stephen and this other guy, they basically are twins. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself? My name's Andre Lavroni. I'm a seminary student from... Laurel, Maryland. I'm not from Northern Ireland. No, no. Steven looks like he's from Northern Ireland. Andre looks like he played a few seasons in the NFL. So we're here at Galpin Ford. Let's walk this way, guys. And uh, we're here for a few reasons. Number one, one of my one of my roles in life is to take seminarians to breakfast because breakfast is my favorite meal. It's a time of fellowship. It's a time of man training, dude discipleship, all those things. You don't usually go to a car dealership for breakfast, no matter what country you're in. No, we don't. But Galpin built a restaurant in their dealership where they can close deals or whatever the salesman can eat. You come this way. It's called the Horseless Carriage Restaurant, and it's a very typical American diner, okay? So here it is, in all its glory. Right? I mean, Stephen, describe what you're This saying. is the quintessential American diner, like right? you see it on the movies. Yeah. yeah guys sitting at the breakfast bar, little booths. Everything's kind of turquoise, <laughs> a lot of glass, you know? It's, it's kind of perfect. This place is a slice of church history for us because I don't know which booth it was, but one of these booths in 1985 was occupied by John MacArthur and a man he knew who was soliciting MacArthur to take on a new responsibility. MacArthur was already leading one of the fastest growing churches in America. Many of his books had been published. He was an actively sought after author and speaker. And you know, the church occupied the lion's share of MacArthur's attention and interest as it had grown very, very rapidly in those years. So he'd been there now almost 20 years, right? And so MacArthur is like, he's in his 40s, I guess. He's not quite 50, maybe he's about to turn 50. It's like that age, he's, he's, he's my age. And the guy brings him here and tells him, I want you to become the president of Los Angeles Bible College. A college that had been established in 1927 and whose campus was up in Santa Clarita, about 17 miles north of here. Just go right up the 405. MacArthur was living in Northridge, right over here. And the college was up there. It, was a, it had a good reputation, people knew about it, but they, they didn't have a president. 
And so it was at this restaurant that that dilemma was first presented to MacArthur. This is the spot where it went down, where MacArthur had, was faced with the decision, does he stay doing what he's doing or does he complicate his life severely by taking on this leadership mantle at this school, which would become the catalyst for the Master Seminary. So without the horseless carriage, neither of you brothers would be in seminary at the Master Seminary, where you can buy a Ford Mustang or a two-meat breakfast burrito in turquoise boots. I had a job, and they knew I wasn't going to give up my pastoral ministry, so it was odd for them to ask me to do this while also doing that which, both of which may reflect something of the desperation. John thought about it for a month. He talked it over with friends and family, and those closest to him had significant concerns. There were a lot of problems with this fledgling school. It's about 250 students. The faculty hadn't had a, a raise in, I don't know, five or 10 years. They were in trouble financially. They, the enrollment was stuck in a place where it was not functional. They hadn't done maintenance in 10 years. So they needed a huge influx of money just to get level. But I just, I, I guess maybe I was naive. People told me it was a crazy thing for me to do. I, I literally talked to some guys that I know were running other schools because I had been offered the presidency of Moody and turned it down because I didn't want to leave Grace Church. But I was told by several people, this is, this is, this is a fool's errand. Uh, you've got all these maintenance issues. You've got people who don't have any money. You've got, you've got no money for the future. You've got no students. What are you going to do? But I did, I did bank on the fact that I could use the Grace to You radio network to at least to throw out the invitation to see what would happen. So, I mean, it's a calculated risk. On the one hand, I wouldn't have been able to make this happen, but since the Lord had offered it to me, I, I believed that there was a way to, to make it work. We are thankful that the Lord has supplied the college with a new president. Now, in that, the Board of Directors acted decisively last February when they extended the invitation, and in due time, Dr. MacArthur acted decisively in accepting it. It took him nearly a month to come to some kind of decision, which seemed to me like about five years. But at any rate, eventually he did. By the time I got into ministry, I was dead set on how vital it was going to be for me going forward to do everything I could to train people effectively for ministry. Around doctrinal convictions and ministry convictions and all of that. So when I came to Grace, that started from the very get-go with 
you know, Saturday Bible study with men, just trying to train men for leadership. I realized the, the potential to get my hands on an entire institution that was designed and built to train people was an offer that I, I couldn't refuse. John Stead, a high school friend of MacArthur's and professor at the Master's College, spoke at the inauguration service. Dr. MacArthur, on behalf of the faculty, it is with great anticipation and enthusiasm that we affirm you as the fourth president of the Master's College. You bring to us the best of our past, a biblical, Christ-centered commitment consistent with those doctrines of the historic Christian faith. But through God's provision and grace, you also call us to an expanded vision of the future, a vision that is transnational and transcultural in scope, a vision that goes beyond ourselves, beyond the Santa Clarita Valley, beyond the San Fernando Valley, and beyond denominational boundaries. A vision for the extension and expansion of God's kingdom wherever we have that opportunity. John would go on to serve as president for 33 years. He's been in the role of chancellor since 2018. Here's what he said when he announced the move to chancellor six years ago. I originally signed up for five years, thinking I would be able, along with my pastoral ministry at Grace Community Church, to help strengthen the university and the seminary. I underestimated the hold that educating young Christians for gospel influence on the world would actually have on me. Class after class, year after year, as new students arrived, I found it really impossible to let go of the opportunity to educate their minds and hearts to take the light of God's truth into this dark world. So I've stayed and loved every day of my service. Okay, so MacArthur has a long history of ministering to college students. Well, what about younger teenagers? Has JMAC spent much time preaching to them? Well, for the past 15 years, John MacArthur has spoken at Regen, our high school summer camp hosted by Grace Community Church in Glorieta, New Mexico, which just happens to be outside of my hometown, Albuquerque. But a man must stand so there'll always be the lights of Albuquerque. The lights of Albuquerque Jews in the desert night They watch over all I love So while they burn my world's alright It's in the land of enchantment, the 505, that John MacArthur has ministered to thousands of teenagers. Many of our church's high school students trace their conversion back to a sermon their pastor preached at Camp Regen. I went to Camp Regen, and its theme was looking to Jesus. During camp, many other sermons talked about Christ's redeeming love, and the loveliness of Christ overcame my heart. There at camp, God showed me that my works were futile, and only He could save me. I knew I was a sinner, but now I knew that Christ's love is greater than my sin. I've often struggled with assurance of my salvation. But providentially, this year's region theme was based on the blessings of assurance. And through that, the Lord opened my eyes and made me realize that He is my shepherd and I am His sheep. And as a shepherd takes care of his sheep, he protects and cares for each and every one of his children, guarding them from the temptations of this world. It is a privilege to be with you. I 
think I've been to every one of the uh, camps you've had at Glorietta. Really just a great joy for me to be here with you. Are you having a good time? John certainly enjoys preaching at summer camp. It's an experience that you really need to behold. It's not MacArthur in a suit and tie. Instead, he's rocking the Nikes, a golf polo. There was even one year he preached in cowboy boots. He's grateful for the opportunity to minister to so many young people. He also knows that settings like that are and have been incredibly valuable to him as a preacher. The best training I ever had to preach was certainly not in seminary. I don't remember any sermon I ever preached in seminary preaching class. I don't want to discount the need for that. But where I learned to preach was preaching to junior high kids and high school kids. And it started very, very early. And there's a certain level of desperation when you get up, say, at a camp in front of 500 high school kids who um, who are at all points of spiritual interest and, and indifference. How do you capture their minds? At some point in his ministry, John MacArthur definitely figured out the answer. Today, he's surrounded by young people. He's hired young pastors, young staff members. The new members we welcome each month to our church are mostly young. Over his 55 years now and counting, John MacArthur has never stopped asking that question. How do you capture their minds? As a pastor, he's never stopped ministering to young people, and they keep coming to Grace Church. Every Sunday, John preaches to thousands of people who are more than half his age. How is that possible? John MacArthur is in the middle of his ninth decade of life. He doesn't know a single Taylor Swift song. And this was the Andy Reid special. This was the Andy Reid special. He doesn't have a clue which film won the Oscar for Best Picture last year or probably any year. It's been 84 years. He's not trying to be an influencer, yet young people appreciate him. They look to his ministry. Why is that? In MacArthur's approach to ministering to young people, we find helpful answers to a question that seems to perennially vex church leaders. How do we reach the next generation for Christ? What, if anything, can we do to keep our children from walking away from the faith? Well, in this episode, we're going to try to answer those questions as we look to how MacArthur continues to provide so much value to young people. It also explores the rampant anxiety and depression that's well noted among teenagers today. We'll also talk about how the church can help teens in crisis. We'll need to discuss the most popular and least effective strategies for reaching young people with the gospel and the tendency that churches have to make everything so, well, juvenile. Finally, we're going to have to talk about something that's been called a weed in the church. That's what critics are calling youth pastors, youth groups, me. Do the critics have a point? Will we save the next generation of Christians if we fire all the youth pastors? Keep all the kids in big church with their parents? Shut down Sunday school classes? It's a contentious and spicy question that we'll address near the end of this episode as we offer a friendly critique 
of the family integrated model for church ministry and a defense of what MacArthur's been about his whole life, which is ministering to every generation. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. And this is season three of the podcast from the Center, the enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. We're going to start this episode with some terrifying statistics from Ezra Klein, host of a New York Times podcast. A CDC survey found that in 2021, almost 60% of high school girls experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the past year. And nearly 25%, I, I just, this number, man, nearly 25% made a suicide plan. You heard that correctly. One in four teenage girls seriously considered ending their life in 2021. This epidemic of sadness affects boys as well. Here's Klein again. Between 2011 and 2021, the number of teens and young adults with clinical depression, it more than doubled, more than doubled. Between 2007 and 2019, the suicide rate for those in their early 20s rose by 41%. And the suicide rate for 10 to 14-year-olds, 10 to 14-year-olds, think about how young that is, it tripled. What's causing the sharp increase in unhappiness and depression over the last decade? Jean Twangy, a professor at San Diego State University, has a theory. Here she is, explaining it to Ezra Klein on his podcast. One day I came across the results of a poll from the Pew Center for Research. And it showed that the end of 2012 was the first time that the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. And in these same surveys of teens, that time period was also when social media use moved from something that about half of teens were doing every day, it was in 2009, to by 2015, 2016, about 80% of them were doing it every day. So then basically what happened is social media use moved from optional to almost mandatory among teens. So that's when I started to think maybe that had something to do with it, that teens were spending so much more time online. The more Twangy studied the issue, the more convinced she became that there was a connection between the rise of depression in teenagers and the amount of time they spent staring at screens. The reason why I think the smartphones and social media explanation has held up is because that is what had the biggest impact on the day-to-day -day lives of teens. It wasn't something that happened to their parents. It wasn't a single thing they read about in the news. It completely restructured their time outside of school because social media is social. It impacts even people who don't use it. And it had a huge impact on the way teens spent time with their friends, that they started spending a lot less time with each other face to face. And you think about what's important for mental health overall, it's relationships. Then you think about teens in particular, that is what makes or breaks mental health for a teen is their relationships, particularly their friendships. And the way those friendships were conducted changed completely. Gene Twangy wrote a book about the generation currently between 12 and 26 years old. The title and subtitle say it all. 
iGen, why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood and what that means for the rest of us. In it, Twangy describes a younger generation marked by fear, anxiety, and the overwhelming need for safety. She has a good read on the problem. Smartphones and social media have upended everything we thought we knew about teenagers and how they spend their time. At the end of Twenge's book, she has some helpful advice for young people and the parents who raise them. Put down the smartphone, talk to actual people, limit the time you spend on social media, exercise, eat healthy, get a job. That's great and important advice. It may temporarily take care of some of the symptoms. It won't cure the disease. And it misses something. Something that MacArthur has been saying for several years now. That the technology addiction, all the secularism, it's part of a broader war. A war on children. A subject John takes up in his next book. Our society is in active opposition to children. Its lies and cruelty are making it harder than ever for children to avoid the despair that we've been talking about. The onslaught is relentless. The, the, the barrage of lies, uh, falsehoods, bad ideologies, corruption is relentless. I mean, it's tough enough to be a fallen kid like all kids are with an evil heart and um, survive with a minimal kind of assaults. But when it just comes at you from every imaginable level, it is so destructive. And uh, just to add this note, I think any parent who thinks that he can withstand that on his own, some father thinks that he's all that that child needs, is, um, is delusional. You, you need an army to defend your kids. And that's why you need to be in a church where they're, they're hearing the word of God from every possible angle and they're meeting all kinds of people that enrich their lives, that they grow to appreciate and enjoy and love. They need not to feel like they just need to be a Christian to stand against it. They need to feel like they're a part of something that's really successful, big, exciting, enthusiastic. I'm not alone. You know, I was reading an article a couple of days ago. Psychiatrists are in a panic all over the country right now because they don't know what to do with the, with the teenage kids who have mental illness. That's how they classify it. I mean, they're, they're broken families and, and the horrendous corruption that's pouring into their hearts beyond anything they've ever seen in the past and suicide. So um, th this attack is, is formidable and it takes, it takes an army to, to withstand it, I think. And that's, that's where the church steps in so that there's accountability. There are a whole lot of people touching the life of your young person a lot of people who are praying for them, who care for them, who invest in their lives. Um, th this would be the worst time ever to pull your kid aside and try to convince him to be a Christian in the middle of all of this if, if he thinks that it never gets outside his family. I mean, this is it, and it's just us, and you can easily find people like that who get critical of churches, critical of outside ministries. Um, th that And the you know, the result of that is very often very bad. You get a you get a kind of a kid who might be acting in a legalistic way but never has a had had a changed heart. 
They need to see themselves as a part of something God is doing on a large level. They, they need Christian friends. They need other kids that are struggling like they are, that are hearing the same truth. They can hold each other accountable. So I, I think the premium is always the same. It's always on the Word of God. It's always on the Scripture. It's how effectively can you communicate the Word of God to young people? And how effectively can you teach them how to read and understand the Bible? I mean, I don't know that that is anywhere near what it should be in youth ministry today, where you're not just talking to the kids, but you're teaching the kids how to read the Bible themselves, how to be in the Word with, um, with effectiveness and productivity and insight. MacArthur reminds us that young believers need what all of us need, the Word of God. Churches can't just say that the Bible has value. They must actually embrace it and study it and show its value. It's up to the pastors and leaders of the church to help young people know how to do that so they can have answers to life's big, tough, and practical questions. Questions like, why does your life really matter? Why should you live for more than Instagram likes and YouTube videos? What is a biblical worldview versus the thing that's being crammed down your throat all the time by secular media? Sadly, instead of pointing young people to the Bible's answers to those questions, too many churches have hyped up their students on entertainment and feel-good messages. In other words, the church has scrambled to instantly gratify kids' desires, somehow thinking they will win them to Christ. Well... Hi, Bo Peep. Hey, buddy. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Are you at church? Yes, we are. Welcome to Saddleback, everybody. Obviously, that weird, awkward, and downright bizarre interaction needs some context. The husband and wife you just heard are Andy and Stacy Wood. They're the co-pastors of Saddleback Church in Orange County. They're the ones that took over for Rick Warren. This isn't the first time this church has come up on the podcast this season. In episode one, we learned that Saddleback had been kicked out of the SBC for appointing lady preachers, including Stacy Wood. And in this case, she's playing Bo Peep. As you guys are being seated, tell your partner beside you, do you, do you vote for Team Woody or Team Buzz? And I better hear a lot of Team Woody out there. Stacy and Andy are advertising a new sermon series at Saddleback. It's called At the Movies. The idea, I think, is to find biblical themes in some of the culture's biggest movies. They're trying to make church seem cool, hip, inviting, culturally relevant, etc. But that's not what's happening. What's really going on is they're making fools of themselves, dressing like Disney characters, childhood toys in front of thousands of adults. Look, I like Toy Story as much as the next guy. And it may be easy to poke fun at Woody, or the Woods, and Saddleback Church. But they aren't the only ones with a panache for the trivial. For decades, churches all across America have been outdoing each other in their efforts to appear hip, funny, cool, culturally relevant, and most of all, juvenile. So people ask me, Ignatius, what does it take to be a great youth pastor? Well, my answer is always the same. Xbox 360, a copy of Rock Band, book deal, and uh, there's something else. Um, yes, 
a moderately priced haircut. Just to be clear, that's a parody video, a viral YouTube clip of a fictional youth pastor named Ignatius. Our ministry's called Flame, and it's based on some verse in the Bible about fire. You know, we want to see our kids on fire for God. I mean, in the middle of this godless culture, we want to drive a stake in the heart of it. I mean, we want our kids burning at the stake. I believe that in the middle of this culture where sexual morals are out the window and our kids are struggling with gender issues, God wants to raise up a generation of flamers. I want to see our students stand up in their classrooms, in their hallways, and unashamedly proclaim, I'm a flamer and I'm proud. Ignatius is designed to be ridiculous, but like any good parody, there's an element of truth in his character. Did anybody bring their Bibles tonight? All right, get them out. Let's get those Bibles out. Put them up over your head. That's it. All right, now repeat after me. Say God's word. God's word is living, is living and, active. and active. It is powerful. It is, powerful. It is, more, it is more than I, than I can, deal with can deal with at this stage, this stage of my life. Good. Put them under your seat. You're not going to need them tonight. Again, this is satire, and this character is mocking something that is all too real in modern youth ministry. That's the reality that thousands of churches across America function, as if the Bible is irrelevant for their young people, that it's boring, uninteresting, inaccessible, something they can't understand. They pander to young people by trying to connect with them through touch points of cultural relevancy. If you want to be a good youth pastor, you got to know what the kids are watching. That's what they say, and you got to say stuff like, well, King David had the riz, or whatever. Too many churches today downplay what the Bible says because they don't worship the God that the Bible shows to us. They, like the culture, worship youth. In the world and the church, people obsess over it. Like Ponce de Leon, who tore apart Florida looking for the fountain of youth. But the culture and too many churches are on a quest to avoid aging, to appear young and relevant as long as they possibly can. Of course, churches should want to minister to young people, to actively reach the next generation. But if they're willing to cater to the culture in order to pander to youth, they're missing the mark as they bring the time-tested techniques of youth ministry from the past 50 years to big church. Things like shallow worship music, Waking up knowing there's a reason All my dreams come alive Life is for living With you I've made my decision Or constant cultural references So the videos of those storming the Capitol were crazy, right? Well, I'm storming towards the Capitol. Capital G. God. Over the weekend, did you guys see Jeff Bezos? He went to space, right? Absolutely nuts. And see, I think sometimes, I don't know, I just wish I could be Jeff Bezos because sometimes I need space from this place. Can you relate? Yeah, I see that hand. Yeah, guys, Larry King may have died, but I know a king who's raised a life. You know, every time I look at that cargo ship in the Suez Canal, I can't help but see me, see all of you, every single one of you with that baggage, with that weight holding up traffic. And God is just looking at us and he's just saying, let it go. Go. Finding something better than God, it's like finding a PS5. It's impossible. Or lots of games and prizes. Today we have seven low prep games for your youth group. How did we get to this point where the juvenile and often silly dominate so much youth ministry? 
The person probably most qualified to answer that question is Thomas Bergler, professor at Huntington University in Indiana. He's also the author of an important book titled The Juvenilization of American Christianity. Here he is talking about the selfish bent in American culture, particularly in youth culture that has shaped the church in recent decades. This focus on self-development and my problems and my needs as kind of the center of Christian faith. If you ask many Americans, young or old, what do you like about being a Christian? They'll often talk about, well, God helps me with my problems. I feel better. I feel happier. I, when I go through a hard time, God helps me feel better about it. Uh, and these are not bad things. I think the Bible suggests that God wants to help us in those ways. But it's much less common to hear an American Christian say something like, what I love about being a follower of Jesus is that I get to partner with him in his kingdom mission to make the world a better place. That's less common. That's not the first thing that comes out of most people Americans. Christian Just listen to the worship music. It's I and me and you and Jesus are the main people. There's very little we. In his book, Bergler traces the rise of this self-focused youth culture after World War II, when businesses appealed to young people hoping to win customers for life, and politicians dealing with the Cold War spoke of the next generation as the saviors, the ones who were going to usher in peace and save humanity from its worst tendencies. By the 1990s, when megachurches became an American institution, the church was in full-blown accommodation to this youth-focused way of life, dumbing down her ministry, caring more about being fun than biblical, emphasizing music more than preaching, games more than discipleship, wanting, more than anything, to be cool, hip, and relevant. Here's Burglar again, with one example of how juvenilization has spread to the entire church. The spirituality of falling in love with Jesus, which is in books and seminars and often in a lot of music, worship music. And this is something that began amongst teenagers. You can imagine why teenagers are concerned with falling in love. And so uh, youth ministers, in an attempt to appeal to teenagers and to help them understand what a relationship with Jesus was like, they said, aha, let's call it falling in love with Jesus. That the way the teenagers will understand what we're talking about. But in the process, they reinvented, renamed, re-understood what a relationship with Jesus is really about. To summarize, in recent years, the church has more and more taught young people that the Christian faith is all about them. They can reshape and recast it according to whatever appeals to them. You like fun? We have fun. You like pop culture? We got that. You like concerts? We can totally rock. That's the sad, desperate vibe the church is sending. Along with that, it turns out Christianity is all about you as well. It's an emotional journey, an experience by which they get their momentary desires gratified. The church becomes a place that feeds self-obsession. The church is man-centered and not God-centered. That's how you get crazy stuff, like helicopters dropping Easter eggs on the lawn for the church hunt, pastors in costumes and sermon series on the movies. They learned all this stuff from the man-centered model of youth ministry. It's not that the church can't do fun stuff. It's that when she thinks the fun is the main thing, she loses her way. MacArthur likes to say that whatever you use to attract them is what you'll have to do to keep them.
Has this experiment worked? Has it been a way for the individual to find the happiness and life satisfaction they seek? Well, hardly. Well, more and more young adults are dropping out of church. According to a recent study, 66% have stopped attending. The study cited is from Lifeway Research, part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Obviously, those millions who are leaving church are doing so for different reasons. But what they all have in common is that the church's strategies for keeping them in the fold didn't work. They left even as churches were catering to their every need. They left, and so many of them started to experience the anxiety, depression, and loneliness we referenced at the beginning of this episode. Clearly, young people don't need to be entertained. They don't need a message that's all about them. They need something else. Fundamentally, young people need what everybody needs, which is the gospel. That's the voice of Dr. Abner Chow, president of the Master's University and Seminary, longtime beloved Bible professor at the university. You can't get anywhere in the Christian life without starting. And the only starting point is the work, the regenerating work of God through and in the message of the gospel. So that's what young people need. They need what everybody needs. They need deep theology that is affecting their their life. When young people are bombarded with the message, hey, just do this, just behave this way, just have integrity and character, and, and those things matter, to be clear, but when that's all that is given to them, they have the false impression that Christianity is just moralism. It's just behavioralism. It has nothing really in that way to do with Christ. Christ is just, in a lot of people's minds then, a manipulator to get a certain kind of activity. That's all he is. But we need to teach them why they believe what they believe. They need to understand that Christianity is rooted in deep theological truth and truth that is real and truth that's ultimately about Christ summed up in him. And it's when you have that depth that you understand why you're doing what you're doing and you're motivated to do that all the more. When asked why all the young people Lifeway Research surveyed are leaving the church, Abner pointed to a fundamental truth from scripture. When we think about why young people leave the church, of course, biblically, in my mind, there can be two reasons. The fundamental one is exactly 1 John 2, that they went out from us because they never were of us. This is the parable of the sower where you either are sown in the rocks or in the thorns and the initial excitement or trials of this world just choke you out. Then Dr. Chow gave us a helpful solution. One that points to the entire church, the whole body of Christ, as the best means of evangelizing young people and then discipling them before they leave home. I think a second factor of why people leave the church, they have had church that is superficial and shallow, where everything is based upon emotion, where everything is unto just a behavioral or moralistic or therapeutic end where everything has been about them and at a certain point a church can't keep entertaining can't keep inventing can't keep giving the next new thing that will satisfy one's selfish desire and people will bail they may be believers they just have been emaciated in their spiritual development And what they needed always was deep discipleship. Someone telling them the glories of God, 
turning their eyes from themselves to the God who is far more interesting and far more compelling, far more holy, far more glorious, and far more transcendent than them. And for the first time, they actually worship rightly the way it was always designed, where there's actually someone worthy to be worshipped. And that is what captures the soul. Uh, the enemy presses hard after young people. He presses hard after our kids. This is Steve Crawford, an alumnus of the Master's Seminary and an associate pastor at Grace Bible Church in Hutchinson, Kansas. For more than a decade, Steve has worked with young people. And if we come at them with fluff, when crisis hits, the fluff isn't going to satisfy. Teenagers, I have found that most of them are really wrestling with hard questions and, and deep questions, and they see injustice and they see abuse and they see uh, the evil of a fallen world being thrust in their face all the time, whether it's through classmates at school or whether through it's stuff on their phone. And high schoolers are often asking, how practical is the Bible for this? How relevant is the Bible for this? And, and if you come at high school students and junior high students with fluff in your youth ministry, when, when crisis hits and everything falls apart in their lives, they're going to say, this is empty, this is hollow, this has this has no answers, and they're going to turn from what they think is the church. And that's why we see so many, sadly, people who say they tried Jesus and now they're deconstructing. Uh, and that's tragedy. That is the result of fluffy, weak sauce youth ministry. You need to treat them not necessarily as like full-fledged adults like you would to somebody who's been married 20 years, but they are adults in the sense that they're old enough to turn from their sins. They're old enough to repent. They're old enough to die and go to hell. That's one thing I remind myself often is that these kids are old enough to die in their sins. You know, junior hires and high schoolers, whatever the age of accountability is, they're past it and they need to respond while there's still time. And so I'm doing a disservice to them if I ever bring them, you know, weak sauce, garbage youth ministry. The vision for youth ministry laid out by Abner and Steve is in lockstep with John MacArthur's. John's ministry has always focused on the true gospel and authentic conversion. He knows those realities are the foundation of the Christian life. So they should be the foundation of every youth ministry. I have never done anything to isolate the preaching and the teaching to any age group. Um, I, I think what many guys have a problem with is they decide to find a sort of a cultural frame of reference. And once they do that, they isolate themselves to that given culture. And so they ignore the older people. They may ignore the younger people. Uh, they may ignore the next wave that's coming through in 10 years, and they may be obsolete. So to start with, I... I believe the Word of God taught, preached, fits every generation. And so we've never done anything to sort of um, frame our Bible teaching in any kind of generational sense or cultural sense. That not, not only am I saying that on an age level, but I'm saying that on an ethnic level. If you look at Grace Church, I mean, it's just a mass of humanity from, um, I don't even, I can't pronounce the names at the membership meeting. Um, so that that is the bottom line. That is the core conviction of my heart, that the, the Word of God is alive and that it 
it reaches every kind of person, every age, at every level. So that's where we start. What John is talking about is the substance of our teaching. All our efforts in ministry are based on the teaching of the Bible, regardless of age, regardless of circumstances. Everyone who comes to church needs the same thing, truth, to be shown what the text means, to hear the gospel explained clearly and accurately, to be told that life is not about them, it's about the glory of Jesus Christ. Still, John MacArthur knows that there is a particular value in ministering to youth. He's seen its value not just for the students, but for his own ministry, starting back when he was in seminary. When I first started preaching in seminary, I did a lot of camps all over the place. I did um, Bible clubs in high schools. They used to have Bible clubs. Of, you know, they would allow them in public high schools. I, um, I spoke at uh, youth groups in churches, but particularly did a lot at camp. For example, Hume Lake, which is one of the premier camp uh, experiences here in the state of California. I would go there at the end of the school year and stay all summer. So I might be there 10 weeks and every week there was a junior high camp and a high school camp. In the morning I would preach to the junior hires and at night I'd preach to the high schoolers and I would do that one week and then the, those kids would leave and a new batch would come and I'd do it all through the entire summer. And at the same time, what was really good about it was I was there living in, in the camp with the kids. So the personal touch was there. I, I played games with them, you know, went hiking with them, did whatever the kids did. But yeah, I, I really, I really kind of honed my um, my communication, uh, talking to kids. I, I realized when I first started teaching young people that I would always know whether they were interested, because if they weren't interested, they would talk. I used to say they have the courtesy to talk. They have the, the courtesy to move around, get up, change seats, leave the room. So they're they're sending you plenty of feedback. So. The, the, the challenge in teaching, say, junior high kids, let's start there, even though I started teaching junior kids in a small Sunday school class, the challenge with junior high kids is to make the Word of God interesting and alive to them. It is still the Word of God, but you, you, have, to, you have to use some common sense approaches in proclaiming the Word of God in order to capture their hearts. You have to find illustrations from their world and their life and uh, you have to communicate in a vernacular that, that they will understand. That's solid gold from JMAC. Don't change the message, but be aware of your audience. Speak to the people in front of you in a way they can understand. Bring truth to them in a way that's clear and accessible. That's what youth ministry or any ministry is all about. I think you have to have a compelling commitment to the Word of God. It has to come across as an accurate representation of Scripture. But it's, it's got to be relevant to their life and it's got to be framed up in ways that they can, they can understand it. So I think the challenge is, the challenge is not in the style, it's in, it's in the content. I think that many healthy, God-fearing, Bible-believing churches would agree with the vision that John just laid out. They'd reject the juvenilization of American Christianity. They would be horrified by Saddleback's Toy Story shtick and the silly efforts by so many churches to trivialize the truth. In recent years, though, some very vocal Christians, in an attempt to reject the juvenilization of American Christianity, 
have fixed their sights on what they believe to be a different problem. That the primary problem in the American church is that there's any ministry to young people at all. A small but vocal minority have started movements of churches and infiltrated many Bible churches equipped with an agenda. That the problem with the American church is the youth pastor, the Sunday school teacher, or kids church. They even have a weaponized vocabulary they employ. They call it age segregated ministry. That's right, segregated. You got a class for fifth graders at your church where a patient saint teaches the Bible to 10 year olds? Age segregated ministry. And they don't just argue that it's a bad idea, they say it's unbiblical, satanic, and Darwinian. They think the church should have no ministry to college students or children, that families should come to church together in the same car and never separate, sit together in the same pew, never let your kids out of your sight. Load back into the van, go home, stay there all week, seal the bunker against the culture. Their churches have no college ministry, no youth group, no children's ministry, no VBS, no nursery. All the saints and their kids gather together. This is called the Family Integrated Movement. The centrality of the home in the evangelism and discipleship of the next generation. God has a plan for multi-generational faithfulness. That plan is the family. That's the booming and melodious voice of my friend, Dr. Vodi Bauckham. He's the dean of the School of Divinity at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia. He used to be the pastor of a family-integrated church in Houston, Texas. He is, without a doubt, the most prominent advocate of the family-integrated approach to church. And he's quite the critic of modern youth ministry, something I've been involved in my entire life. In addition to my responsibilities here hosting this fine podcast and my work as a professor at the Master Seminary, I serve at my church, Grace Community, as a youth pastor right now to college students. And I've done youth ministry for 25 years and counting. Our current approach to youth ministry, number one, is unbiblical. Number two, is antithetical to what the biblical model is for the evangelization and discipleship of young people. And number three, it doesn't work. Let me give you what we say is the goal of many of our youth ministries. What we say is this, the youth ministry at so-and-so Baptist church exists to evangelize teenagers, to disciple them, and to equip them to go and evangelize other teenagers. Two problems with that. Number one, Nine times out of 10, we never mention parents. And number two, not your job. Whose job is it to evangelize my children? The church? No, it's mine. Look, I can think of a lot of people I'd rather pick a fight with than Vody Bauckham. He is a faithful brother in Christ, and I consider him a friend. But there was once a slight disagreement between us a friendly argument among teammates. The conversation went down at the 2011 Shepherds Conference when Vody made a surprise appearance at my breakout session titled Family Matters, Does the Bible Demand Family Integrated Ministry? The room was primed for some fireworks. 
I did everything I could to defuse the situation by immediately clarifying that though I, as a youth pastor, disagree with family integrated ministry, I don't think it's the biggest problem that faced the church in 2011 or today. This is not heresy. Not heresy. This is not uh, false teaching. These are shepherds and sheep. These are not wolves and goats. So put away your, your fundamentalist weapons and let's relax here. This is not an attack. It's not like Vody Bauckham is actually here or something. I had the privilege of meeting Vody 20 minutes ago. We have mutual friends and uh, acquaintances. And Vody is not my opposition. <laughs> you can recognize that amen. After that attempt of establishing a foundation of pleasantries, I went on to explain my concerns with the family integrated movement. It can, at times, place too high an emphasis on methodology. How they structure their churches becomes the most important thing about them. The family integrated movement can also, again at times, confuse the roles of the family and the church, giving to the father roles that God intends for the pastor and elders. After all, the local church, not solely the family, is God's discipleship program. Christ's church is a reminder that families are not an end in themselves. Families need other families. They also need pastors and leaders. And ultimately and eternally, your family will not consist of those who are biologically related to you. In the New Covenant, the church isn't a family of families, but the family of God. Yes, there's a responsibility of parents to faithfully teach their children the truth, but the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately will save them. After addressing those concerns, I tried to take a more positive approach, make a biblical case for age-appropriate ministry, and point out how youth groups and college ministries can have a valuable and biblical role in the life of the church. Here's a young ATD. I believe that a biblical student ministry understands that is the call of both the church and the family to disciple students and thus present all people complete in Christ. I believe families are to integrate into the church and not the church into the family. Sorry to interrupt myself here, but I need to add a couple biblical references, both from Jesus, both quite shocking. The first is Matthew 10:37. It's there that Jesus says, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. A few chapters later, we read, while he's still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus replied to the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And extending his hand, toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, obviously Jesus isn't anti-family, but he's anti-turning the family into an idol, saying it's more important than knowing the Savior. And to help us all know Christ better, God gives us the church with its diversity of spiritual gifts. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So now, after that somewhat long interruption, back to me. Let me give you some convictions for building student ministry that honors the Bible. Let me give you a little bit of what we do here. Number one, you need to build a student ministry with the Bible. Our philosophy of ministry here, the purpose statement of our ministry is this, in high school ministry, the purpose of high school ministry at Grace Church is to assist parents in the evangelizing and discipling of their teenagers with the desired result of lives conform to the image of Christ. Number two, build students into the local church. Ecclesiology is sadly absent from too many youth pastors' theologies. Number three, build students into the gospel. Church kids need the gospel. Bad. Unsaved kids need the gospel. What is the gospel? It's historical. It's focused on the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the center of our lives. The gospel is not advice. It's not a helpful hint. It's not a lifestyle. It is news. It is a message. And that's what youth pastors have to proclaim. The gospel. Number four, build students into their families. Build students into their families. To build students into their families is the only way youth ministry can be properly done. If I was giving that lecture again today, I would add this. The Bible doesn't say that the church should or shouldn't have age-specific ministry. Some of the proponents of the family-integrated church use Deuteronomy 6, to try to demonstrate that children should only and exclusively learn from their parents in the context of the family of God. Deuteronomy 6 says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons, and speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Now, that's an important teaching. That's the, the creed of Israel, the Shema. And it is showing us the centrality, significance, and importance of parents investing truth into their children and their children's children. But in the context of the church, it's not an exclusive investment. To say an Old Testament passage like that is forbidding anyone except parents from teaching their children is to stretch that passage beyond its hermeneutical limits. As we've already pointed out, there are bad youth ministries with bad ecclesiology that do not honor the parents' role. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all youth ministries are a bad idea. That's like saying we should shut down all churches because some of them have bad doctrine. It doesn't make any sense. Youth ministry can be done with sound theology, good ecclesiology, and a helpful and beneficial relationship to the family. And that's what I say in my talk. If you've got questions, you can listen to the whole thing. I've got Bible verses, quotes, jokes, whatever you want. It's available at shepherdsconference.org. Look, it comes down to this. I have teenagers. Many of you, dear listeners, have teenagers. I don't want to be the only voice that is telling them the truth of the gospel and a biblical worldview. 
I see the people in their lives, the members of Grace Church who have chosen to give up their Wednesday nights to go to a high school Bible study and lead a small group and disciple young people as allies, advocates, and dear friends because they're reinforcing what has been my and my wife's prayer since our kids were little, that they would walk in a knowledge of the Savior. And for them to hear that, not just from mom and dad, but from the entirety of the church family is what makes the church such a beautiful thing. And by using student ministry to do that, we're not cutting them off from God's appointed means. We're showing them what a rich blessing it is to be a part of the church. In the second edition of Andreas Kosenberger's book, God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation, he included a chapter critiquing the family-integrated church. The heart of his argument is that the FIC model elevates the family to an undue status that is unwarranted in light of the biblical teaching on the subject. He concludes his chapter with a point of helpful balance. Here's what he said. What, then, is the proper way to conceive of the relationship between the family and the church? Are they to be pitted against one another, as if the church needs to be kept at bay so families can disciple their children without undue interference from the church? Is the church to be elevated to the extent that families are submerged under a flood of programs and suffer as a result? Neither extreme is desirable. Instead, the church and the family each ought to recognize their God-given roles and to partner together in bringing glory to God and to respect and affirm each other's respective spheres. When I asked John MacArthur why Grace Church has always had a nursery, always had children's Sunday school classes, and always had a youth group and college ministry, here is what he said. Well, first there's the pragmatic reality. Uh, I sat under my dad, he was my pastor, and I loved him probably more than anybody, obviously my, my own father and mother. And I, when I was a little kid, I'd sit when he preached and I would count the E's in the bulletin. So, look, I'm like nine years old, and literally I'm counting the E's in the bulletin. Because uh, in the first place, nothing in my life compels me to the solution that he's offering. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. I mean, he's preaching to people. Um, the, the word of God is the answer to this and this. And I don't even have those questions. Right. I'm a nine-year-old kid, right. you know. So... You, you have to recognize that there has to be a, a, a very well thought out approach to instructing children in, in the Word of God. Any parent with half a brain knows that. Right. So you would do that in your home. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you would do that with your own children, age appropriate instruction. Why wouldn't you do that in a church? The, the advantage of doing it in the church rather than isolating it in the home, is that the church has multiple gifted people who can do so many things better than, I mean, look, we all have some gifts, but we don't have all the gifts. That's the genius of the church. 
the church has all the gifts and so the richness of that biblical training is coming from all kinds of people investing into this life why would you say it's better for the father to be the only teacher when that doesn't make any sense at all um, I'm not against homeschooling but I know this even the people who are the most adamant with homeschooling are the most desperate to find the right curriculum because if they don't get outside their own head they they're not going to be able to teach their children so we have to depend on other people. And in the church, you can have that personal touch. You know, when um, people have said to me in the years past, your kids all love Christ. They all grew up to love Christ. I said, why? And I said, because I had them in a good church where they were surrounded by people who personally in their own lives affirmed everything their mom and dad taught them. I can't even tell you the value of that. It's a massive thing. They have vivid memories of being taught the Word of God by multiple people, of being in, the, in, in classes with other uh, little children, hearing the same things and growing up together and making lifelong friends. So the, it's, uh, it's folly to isolate the instruction of the Word of God to a single family member, even a father. It is a responsibility, but it's not where that responsibility ends. MacArthur has seen this wonderful reality in the life of his own family. What my my little um, two-year-old great-grandson Sunday came up to my office, and he wanted M&Ms, and he's two. His name is Titus. And his mom said, uh, you have to ask Papa for those after you said your Bible verse. So he mumbles, John 3, 16, and he rattles off something. And I'm thinking in my heart, this is two years old. And he's he's learning John 3, 16. So, yeah, you, you, you know, if you, if you want to, um, if, if you want to really win parents, you, you have to have directed instruction in the Word of God in the lives of their children and, and young people and teenagers. So I think you break it down by multiplying many leaders who are gifted teachers and leaders who can break the Word of God down at, at every level. At the foundation of everything John has said about youth ministry is a simple biblical commitment, one that's at the heart of every enduring ministry. That commitment is laid out in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, reminding him of his calling, his responsibility to pass truth along to the next generation. This is what he said. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. That entrusting starts at a young age. For John, it starts with his great-grandson when he's two years old. That entrusting happens in the home, and it happens in the church. We're all called to the work of teaching the next generation the truth, helping them see that their life is not their own. They are bought with a price, and they are called to glorify God. Every one of us are called to work hard in the area of passing truth to the next generation. You say, well, I don't know much. Well, find somebody who knows less than you do and teach them what you know. Find somebody who knows more than you do and learn what they know. Get in the process. Get in the process. 
be a teacher. I'll tell you right now, what you teach, you retain. What you don't teach, you forget. I can read a book, close it up. I'll forget it very soon. I read a book, pull out of a truth, teach that truth, I'll never forget it. What I give away, I keep. What I don't give away, I lose. Teach your children. Children, you're learning God's Word, share with your parents. Teach your friends, your classmates, people at work, a fellow believer. Share God's truth in a Bible study, a prayer time. Write a letter to somebody and explode on the pages of that letter what you've learned out of a portion of God's Word. Be a teacher. It doesn't have to be too sophisticated. Get a group of little kids or young people or adults. Be a Sunday school teacher. Teach God's Word. Get a group of new Christians. Teach them. Let's pass the truth to the next generation. It's the only hope we have, folks. I mean, we live in a world that's just literally coming apart in every dimension. And the only thing that's going to stand true and solid and give any kind of a plumb line to future generations is God's truth. And in order to pass it on, we have to be committed to knowing it and then to passing it. So we could say that the elements of being a strong Christian involve seeing ourselves as a teacher. And let me just wrap it up in the summary, all right? Let me tell you what we've said in a little final summary form. If you're going to be a strong believer, you have to see yourself as a teacher. Secondly, you need to be able to clearly articulate it. You need to speak the things that confirm sound doctrine. You need to speak clearly. You need to understand. You need to be able, as I mentioned Peter's words, to give the people who ask you a reason for the hope that's in you. So you want to read and study the Word, and you want to clearly articulate the Word. And then, lastly, you must be continually involved in the training of someone else. The equipping of someone else who can pass it on to someone else. You see, beloved, we're in a relay race. You're in it. You have the baton in your hand. Somebody gave it to you. Somebody gave you the truth. You've got it. You've got to give it to somebody else. You have to do that. You can't just walk off the track and sit on the grass. That's just not right. Too much is at stake. Thanks for listening to Season 3 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. For our next episode, we're going big time. We're talking about the end. The end of all of it. The end of the whole world. And why John MacArthur isn't afraid to take a clear position on this issue that so many avoid. The subject is eschatology. Next time on The Enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. The Enduring is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Volo. Special thanks to Abner Chow for his contributions to this episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe. That helps others discover us. And for more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master Seminary, please visit tms.edu. ATD, out. Mm-hmm.